0: listening to Women in Revolt, a six-part miniseries about art, activism and the women's movement in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. I'm Lindsay Young. I'm a curator and since 2017 I've been researching the art and artists that feature in Women in Revolt, an exhibition on between November 2023 and August 2025, starting at Tate Britain in London and then at National Galleries of Scotland Modern in Edinburgh and lastly at the Whitworth in Manchester. Throughout my research for the show, I've been meeting artists, makers and activists and hearing about their experiences living through a time of extreme social, economic and political change, exploring how their art and ideas forged a path and learning about the great debt women of my generation owe to them. In these next two episodes of our podcast, we'll hear about how many women of colour mobilised against racism and discrimination in the 1970s and 80s. We'll hear about how artists challenged the ways that art and art history were being taught and how they expressed the politics and realities of their experiences through their work. Before we start, I should warn that this episode includes references to police violence.
1: I've done performance work where I actually shredded Gombrich's history of art. There's no women in it there's certainly no black women in it so it's not a history of art so I made something lovely out of it like little baskets made this really nice quality print but all of those things that were were deemed to be a little bit like awkward or uh, you know you're know, just angry those are all important things to have happen and it, that's kind of the role of an artist is to keep on pushing
0: that was artist Nina Edge we'll hear more from her later But first, for some context to the experiences of women of colour in the 70s and 80s.
2: My name is Stella Dadzi. I am a feminist historian, a writer, and I guess i describe myself as an education activist.
0: We heard from Stella in our first episode about why there were so few women of colour at the early Women's Liberation Movement conferences, marches and groups. In 1985, Stella co-wrote, with Beverly Bryan and Suzanne Scaife, The Heart of the Race, a study of black women's lives in Britain, based on interviews with over 100 women. She also painted the cover image, Motherland.
2: The book was about the journey African and Caribbean women have taken to these shores and what they encountered when they arrived. The discrimination, the exclusion the ghettoisation, the criminalisation of our youth, a whole plethora of issues that were part of the experience of the so-called Windrush generation and their descendants that was a shock to people who had up until then been seen as citizens of empire and who had often come to this country expecting to be welcomed and well-received if only for their contributions to two world wars.
0: In the course of the 70s, women of colour would come together locally to tackle issues affecting their communities. For example, the Brixton Black Women's Group, Southall Black Sisters, Simba Black Women's Group and UBWAG, which Stella herself was involved in.
2: UBWAG was the United Black Women's Action Group and it was based in Tottenham where I lived and worked. And it was an interesting group because it was a combination of ordinary women from the Caribbean who saw injustices in their community and just weren't having it. And then people like myself who probably had slightly more of a theoretical perspective on things because we'd been to university and engaged with the literature. And we were a mix of women from all backgrounds and cultures and um, political leanings, really, if I think about it. We saw our role as just making sure that if things happened in our community that we didn't think were appropriate or just, that we took a stand and made sure that our voices were heard. So we took up things like, well, we were actively involved in the SUS campaigns. We were also looking at things like the Black Boy Pub, which was on Black Boy Lane and had a really crude image of a piccaninny on the board outside, and we wrote to the brewery and said that's not happening our children pass that image every day and it was a small but significant victory for us that we managed to get that plaque taken down and replaced by a black horse you know those kinds of things they were small steps but they were important victories for a community that had found its back against the wall in so many ways
0: Around 200 women from across the country would come together in 1979 for a conference organised by the newly formed Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent.
2: The first National Black Women's Conference, 79, the venue was at a centre in Brixton that was literally a stone's throw from Brixton Police Station, which had been the focus of a lot of our anger because of the malpractices that had gone on within those walls. So... I think it speaks volumes that our conference was being held there while the first Women's Liberation conference was held in Oxford, you know. I think the agenda reflected the overriding issues that were to do with education and the welfare state and our treatment in the workplace. So not traditionally feminist issues, if you think about it, but very much addressed with a feminist lens. And even the term feminist was problematic, I think, for some of the women who attended that event because feminism was seen by some women anyway as very much a white women's thing. It was seen as middle-class white women who were quite often seen as navel-gazing and who confined their concerns to issues of patriarchy and gender inequality which of course impacted on our lives but they weren't the only things that concerned us.
0: There was a sense then that mainstream feminism didn't adequately address issues of race discrimination nor class sexuality or disability. This need to consider the way that different people experience oppression differently would today be called intersectionality.
2: We were doing intersectionality, we weren't calling it that and our intersectionality incorporated things like trade union activism, things like the impact on children, things like the impact specifically on Asian wives. For example, the virginity testing that was taking place at Heathrow Airport. Those kinds of issues, to me, were genuinely intersectional because they were showing how a combination of our gender, but also our race, our class, our economic status, the impact of our status as immigrants impacted on our lives in very real ways
0: this then was the wider context in which women of color were beginning their careers at art school my name is shut Biswas, i'm an artist
3: i came to being an art student as the daughter of parents who had been born in british india and then due to partition in 1947 where their ancestors had lived was then known thereafter as east pakistan and then in the 1970s became bangladesh so my father was an academic you know came from a lineage of barristers and here they were in a situation that was beyond their control where they were basically displaced and where they witnessed the genocide that was as a consequence of the partition of India under the British. So I arrived at Leeds with this knowledge at a time where between 1976 and 1981, just weeks before I enrolled as a student at Leeds, there had been riots in my community I grew up in a really working class community in the suburbs of London, in a place called Southall, where at that time, we were exposed to a climate in which fascists were given purchase and protected by the police to walk up and down our streets, you know, in protest, demanding the repatriation of British subjects who were black and brown. And in 1981, just before I arrived at Leeds, in response to an oi band playing in a pub called the Hamburg Tavern, which was on Uxbridge Road in Southall, in response to that, the South Asian... And the Afro-Caribbean community resisted, protested, and burnt that tavern down to the ground.
0: This act of resistance in Southall was soon followed by protests and uprisings elsewhere, in Handsworth in Birmingham, Toxteth in Liverpool, and Mossside in Manchester.
3: This is at a time in British history where I had also grown up with Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, where as Asian women and Asians, South Asians, we were stereotyped endlessly within the broader media, where South Asian women were portrayed as stereotypically meek and mild and voiceless, and where the Asian community, South Asian community, were really victimized alongside the Afro-Caribbean community by the police and by the state.
0: Shutepa arrived at Leeds University in the autumn of 1981 to study fine art with art history. She was the only student of colour there. She had been attracted by the radical approach of the course, which had been established by the art historian T.J. Clark.
3: So T.J. Clark's course was really quite extraordinary because it was engaging with power structures And, you know, he was a Marxist, he was a post-structuralist, and through the presence of Griselda Pollock, who's a great feminist, you know, world-renowned, was also lending a feminist lens to the way in which we began to think about art practice and art history and how the practice of art sits within a broader discipline of art history. And so, It explores power relations. It explores questions of capital in relation to gender, in relation to class. But what was absolutely missing was any kind of conversation about the relationship between race, class, gender, and capitalism. This became clear to Shittipa from the very start. When I came into the lectures... One of the first images that I encountered projected onto a cinematic scale was Turner's painting, The Slave Ship. So the the painting by Turner is an image and a representation of a slave ship on the ocean in really quite stormy seas. The colours are quite rich lots of reds and oranges and yellows it's a very kind of fiery scene and the water is visibly rocking this vessel and then what we can see in the water are various objects that are sort of bobbing up and down and one of the other things that's very visible is the hand of a subject of a human being that's sort of being held up above the line of the water and it's a slave who has been thrown overboard and it really was extraordinary to me how art history was being taught for example in relation to this work was you know to discuss it in terms of the evocative brush marks you know, the palette, all of these kind of very evocative language. But nobody was talking
0: about what was in the water. It wasn't only that work. Shutepa started to notice a complete blindness to black subjects and more generally to issues of race, colonialism and capitalism.
3: I began to say we need to change the course. This is unacceptable. We need to rewrite art history because you cannot teach a discipline that is claiming to be Marxist, is claiming to be underpinned by kind of a Marxist critique and a post structuralism feminist critique of art history and art practice without discussing imperialism
0: and capitalism. She started to raise questions very directly with one of her tutors, Griselda Pollock, Griselda had just written Old Mistresses, a groundbreaking feminist critique of art history, which she co-authored with Resika Parker. The book was a radical challenge to the women-free art history that had previously been taught. Shittipa mounted a similar challenge to Griselda about race and imperialism.
3: What I began to do was when I was set an essay by Griselda, I would write the essay. But at the end of of the essay I would set her a series of questions maybe five questions you know why isn't this how does that relate to it why aren't we talking about it? you know all those kinds of questions and what I think in hindsight is extraordinary is that she took the time to reply and this went on throughout our entire relationship as tutor and student so I believe we were learning together we were both making this journey, and I think she realised that change
0: needed to happen. Shutapa also started to raise these kinds of questions and challenges in her art practice.
3: I began to work with performance, and I began to try to think about ways in which I could challenge the Eurocentricity of art history as a discipline and art practice as a discipline by bringing in my knowledge of art historical critique alongside iconography and histories that fell outside of a kind of European or Eurocentric and North American framework...
0: And I began to draw on my own background. Shuttava devised a performance called Kali, named after the Hindu goddess Kali, which she later videoed. What's perhaps most remarkable about it is how she involved two of her tutors, the art historians John Tagg and Griselda Pollock.
3: I felt that the only way that I could really make my case was by inviting these two important art historians into my studio. You may think of it as a lair in order to enact this narrative that
0: unfolds. In the performance, which she videoed, we see her bringing Griselda Pollock into a room, sitting her on a chair in the centre and putting a hood over her head with little holes, rather like something worn by the Ku Klux Klan. The performance that followed contained many elements and references, including a puppet performance between Kali and a small green puppet, Raban.
3: It tells the story of, of capital, you know, good over evil. You know, Kali represents the good, Raban represents the evil kind of capitalist. But there are references to Warhol, you know, the Heinz lentil soup, for example, is an absolute reference to Warhol's use of Heinz tomato soup. You know, desiccated coconut is sprinkled on the floor
0: from a Nescafe coffee jar. It also included the soundtrack from a black theatre company from Soweto, South Africa, who had come to perform locally in Leeds, and words spoken by Shittapa herself in Bengali. While Shutepa fan-cheaters like Griselda Pollock were open to having a conversation about Eurocentricity, race and colonialism in art, students elsewhere faced outright hostility. Here's artist Nina Edge.
1: I don't think I was ever not really motivated in that way to make observation or raise a debate or be prepared to approach difficult subjects because... If I hadn't been able to learn how to stand my ground, I wouldn't have survived. I don't know if you can imagine North Lostershire from 1962, say, to 1974, when I had my young years there. There were no black models. There were no Asian people in adverts. Cultural diversity didn't even extend to white Irish people or Scottish people. The class structures were really very deeply ingrained, especially in rural areas, And so I had to quite quickly use my capacity with language to create a space of safety. So if someone came on to me uh, physically, usually, even if I did end up a bit bruised, I would usually end up having the last word and being able to defend myself with words. So it had been a long, just part of who I'd become from being in that environment. Nina
0: studied ceramics at what is now Cardiff Metropolitan University.
1: When I got to Cardiff, it was very liberating for me because I'd been living in a very a very isolated life as a brown person in a village in Gloucestershire. So I immediately was living in the Asian part of town. I had a house share in Riverside. I suddenly had a lot of access to things that I'd never been able to see or eat or listen to. If Cardiff the city was liberating,
0: Nina found the ceramics department to be very rigid and not able to deal with her more questioning
1: approach to making work. What I did was completely different to what was going on around me. So if we had to make storage jars, because at at that time ceramics was very mottled and speckled and tasteful and it, it had this extraordinary relationship with studio pottery and Japan through just a bizarre journey that a man called Bernard Leach made as a soldier so that the existence of craft pottery in the UK was nothing like its origins of folk pottery in Britain. It was a very mannered it lent towards brown mottled hippie pots for storing brown rice in and so I made tiny porcelain jars for storing butterfly wings or magic spells in and they were thrown really beautifully and then sort of knocked off so that they were like a hurricane. And so there was a constant tension between what I was doing and what the orthodoxy of that course, even though it thought it was about ideas, was able to deal with. So there were things like, there was a guy that very sadly was shot by police on the tube. He was mistaken for a suspect in an IRA bombing. I don't know his name, I've looked for his name since, but I I did a slipware plate that depicted that and it had all the 12 bullets that had gone through his body and English slipware had been quite jokey in its first iteration historically. Potters are quite often humorous and take the mick out of their rulers, so uh, I was made to wash that off. I was made to wash off that. And so I drew the technician in the department instead on my plate. So there was quite a lot of trouble already. It was not an easy relationship that I had with the people that were trained to view ceramics in a certain way. And that all came to a head when I submitted my dissertation title and was forbidden from writing it. So... Two of us were forbidden. My title was The Story of a Little Black Sambo, Depiction, Deception and Appropriation. And I was banned on the grounds it had nothing to do with art and design. And significantly, the other woman who was banned was Pauline Munkham, and her title was Images of Lesbians.
0: It seems so telling now that it was the students that dared to raise issues of racism, homophobia and stereotyping that were the ones that were banned. In the end, we
1: both went, ah, we'll do it anyway because we've come to college to learn about what we want to learn about. So I went ahead and wrote it and I included 117 photographs that I'd shot from magazines and children's books and adverts and packaging. At that point, so that would have been about 1985, visual studies or visual culture wasn't even a, a thing to study. It didn't exist. But I was there pointing out why it had everything to do with art and design. And it seemed that Nina managed to convince the college as her dissertation ended up getting a special star. So what happened next? A group of sculptors, Helen Dennison and Deborah Jones, they wanted to get women to teach them. And so they had gone to their tutors and said, we want female staff. And the men had said, well, there aren't any women artists and they said, well, the Women Artists Conference is coming up in Glasgow, we're going to go and find some. And they paid my bus fare to go so that I would be able to write a report and present a report to their staff so they couldn't be downgraded for making a challenge. So that shows quite a sophisticated level of strategizing from these young women. So we all went off to Glasgow. I went to a workshop called Black Women's Creativity and the only other person that turned up was Maud Salter and I met Maud Salter and we just did the workshop with each other and that really completely changed my world because suddenly I was able to be in contact with other people who knew what I was talking about when I was describing the issues of race or Orientalism or even the boundaries and status involved in using different materials. Maud
0: Silter was a Scottish artist, writer and poet. She had co-founded the Black Women's Creativity Project with the photographer Ingrid Pollard and was deeply embedded with a whole community of black artists who we'll hear more about later.
1: I suddenly, almost overnight, met Shyla Berman, Marlene Smith, Claudette Johnson, Eddie Chambers, Keith Piper, Donald Rodney, Lubayne Bajan Hunjun, all of us suddenly were at these events, and many of which, early on, I think Maud had arranged. In terms of not any longer being able to be bullied for what I was making, that was a really fantastic thing to have happen. So in my second year in the ceramics course at Cardiff, Maud and Ingrid turned up in my workspace and Ingrid took photos of all my pots and really took me seriously about my interest in the story of Little Black Sambo. Now it may be called decolonising the curriculum or it has a number of new titles, but basically we all started that then.
0: In the 1980s, there was a complete lack of visibility of work by black artists in art teaching and books. This was an issue that an art student at Bradford College would address in her final degree show in 1987 in a piece called Art History.
4: So, really, what art history is about is asking those questions about what is creativity and what is art and what isn't art and why there are no black women in art history. My name is Marlene Smith. I'm an artist who curates and I live in Birmingham in the West Midlands and I'm the mother of one daughter.
0: Marlene's work, Art History, features four framed images of Black women hung on a wall next to a vase of plastic flowers resting on a shelf. The picture at the top is of sculptor Edmonia Lewis, who was born in America
4: in 1844. So Edmonia Lewis is not supposed to happen. If you were born in slavery, you don't have ownership of your body, let alone have the ability to make art. And she made monumental sculptures. And she went off to live in a colony of artists in Rome. That's when her story, the trail goes a bit cold then. And at the time that I made this piece, you couldn't Google her in 1987. But if you had Googled her in 1987, you would not have been able to find a death date for her because the research that is still going on around her practice was incomplete. So now... Not only do we know that she died in 1907, and we know that she died in the UK. So there is more work to be done on her.
0: Another of the images is of the artist Simone Alexander.
4: Simone Alexander makes images of herself using primary colours. So she uses cadmium yellow, um, magenta, and a particular blue, the cobalt. And she makes these amazing images of black people without ever making brown. The skin isn't brown, it's translucent, it's colourful, it's magical.
0: There's also a photograph taken by Ingrid Pollard of the hands of the Kenyan-born artist, potter Magdalena Dundo.
4: Magdalena Dundo makes pots, but she doesn't use a spinning pot-making thing. She builds them and she's brought that way of making, from her home.
0: The fourth image is a photograph by Brenda Agard of a Black woman called Portrait of Our Times.
4: None of those women would be included in an art history book. I mean, even Edmonia Lewis was still waiting to find out the rest of her story.
0: Marlene's piece also draws attention to other kinds of creativity and labour.
4: I love the plastic flowers. They are hot, citrusy colours. And they are very flamboyant and they're very loud and very kitsch. And I absolutely adore these flowers. And the vase that is supporting them was crocheted by my mother, who's no longer with us. My mum died in 2019. So I think of this piece of work as a piece that we collaborated on and made together. When I asked my mother to crochet this vase cover for me, she did it very willingly When she'd finished crocheting, there were two pieces. There was the vase itself and the handle. And she said to me, what you need to do now is stiffen them. And I said, yes, what I'll do is I'll get some starch and I'll stiffen them. And she said, no, it's not starch. It's sugar and water that you need. So the sugar and water is what stiffens the cotton. And I had no idea about that before then. And this fascination with sugar and water and how it crystallizes is something that is stayed with me. It's a very loaded commodity. It's a very loaded... You can't think about sugar, I can't think about sugar without thinking about slavery. What I love about this piece is I think it's very beautiful. That's also really important.
0: Marlene's interest in work by black artists
4: started in 1981 when she was still at school. It's really interesting, actually, looking back, that... What happened to me was that I was self-directing. I would call it coming into consciousness when you make a conscious decision to learn about yourself. So when I was studying for my A-levels, there were two things that happened. One was that I took a trip to Jamaica, which is the first time that I'd ever seen where my parents had come from, and that made sense of them. I suddenly having been to see where they grew up made much more sense of who they were to me. The second thing that really has an impact on me is that as part of my A-level curriculum, we had to do a piece of independent study and I chose my study to be about black artists and that meant that I had to find some because my tutors didn't know about any and in fact they were really worried about me. They worried that I wouldn't find any black artists because they couldn't name one.
0: Marlene's research took her to the LSE, the London School of Economics, which was holding an auction to raise funds for Commonwealth students to study there. The show featured work by dozens
4: of Black artists. It was absolutely fantastic. A, it was a relief that I did find some artists, and B, I was really drawn to the work that was specifically addressing certain issues. So I'll never forget Shaka Dedit had a piece where there was a face that was fashioned into the shape of Africa and the words on the piece, if I remember right, they were forget, sufferation, rejection, something else with a shun. It was very didactic and it was suggesting what one should be thinking about. But then at the other end of the spectrum was Frank Bowling's very beautiful abstract works. And I just felt overwhelmed and real excitement that there was all this work happening out there that I hadn't seen before. The show gave
0: Marlene the lead she needed to continue with her research and write the essay. Out of the blue in May, she came across another show by Black artists.
4: Unbeknown to me, my mother and Keith Piper's father worked together in the NHS. So they worked on the same wards of a mental health hospital in Birmingham. I can only imagine that they shared stories of trauma between them. That have, They had these children at home who were insisting on doing this artistic career, whatever that was.
0: Keith Piper was a couple of years older than Marlene and studying fine art at Trent Polytechnic, now Nottingham Trent University.
4: So, one Saturday when I was lying in bed, as teenagers do, my mother came in and she dropped this envelope on me. And it was an A4 envelope. And when I opened the envelope, there was this A1 poster advertising the Pan African Connection. This is the first I've heard of this group. The poster was just electric. So, the poster was a black poster, and out of the black was white lettering. And I can remember that each of the members of the group had one line. Keith Piper's was let us make of our art an enzyme around which to rally the people. And Andrew Hazel said, it was then that I learned of this fascist white brutality. It was just statement after statement. And I got really excited and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And so, I was really looking forward to going to this show. Marlene went along to the opening. Again, hairs on the back of the neck moment because the work was so searing. It made me want to make work like that. It made me excited, a little nervous as well, because they were making references to history and to the current day situation in a way that I hadn't seen any work in the UK do that before. It reminded me of the work that I'd seen of the 1970s black art movement in America. That was the closest comparison.
0: Marlene spent most of the evening chatting to Keith Piper, who invited her to join the Black Art Group, the group behind the show. Through the group, she met artist Eddie Chambers, who was the chair, and artist Donald Rodney. She got involved in organising the first National Black Art Convention. It took place at Wolverhampton Polytechnic in
4: October that year, 1982. Donald and I, as the two newest members, were given the job to sit at the desk and receive people as they arrived. And I got so excited because in a pre-digital age... There was no way of knowing who was coming and if anybody was going to come. And so about 100 people came. And they came from all over the country. Many of the people there would go on to become well-known artists. So I remember seeing Sonia Boyce. She came from Stourbridge College. She came with this oversized parasol that she must have picked up from a second-hand shop. So I remember her. Lubaina Himid came. She was from London. Painter Frank Bowling was there, as was conceptual artist Rashid Areen, who gave the keynote speech. Rashid did a talk called "Art and Black Consciousness," which for me was absolutely astoundingly brilliant. Rashid Areen's thesis around black art was: he was saying, just the way that I remember it, that black art is to black people what feminist art is to women. So he was saying that just because you are black doesn't mean that what you're making is black art. You have to have the intentionality. And then he said things like, it can't be about romanticism and making romantic gestures. It must address the state of blackness. And I found that, I still to this day find it really compelling an argument Another of the speakers was Claudette Johnson, one of the founding members of the Black Art Group. She talked about the history of the Black woman in Western art. So she showed lots of images of Black women that had been painted by white men and white women. And she showed us her work and she talked about what the decisions that she'd taken about how to represent a Black woman in the light of all this history. And it was just spellbounding and beautiful. The way that Claudette made her work, she made the women take up all the space in her canvases. And she talked about that. She said that often in Western art, every piece of the canvas is equally important. And she didn't work in that way. She worked in a way that there was lots of space in the canvas, but the women were in control of it. And so for me, her talk was fascinating because she wasn't just saying, oh, look at all these images of Black women, aren't they terrible? She was saying, this is what this artist was thinking about when he made this image of this Black woman. And this is what I'm thinking about when I'm making my image. And she was acknowledging that she's being taught how to draw and paint in a Western tradition and acknowledging the ambivalence that she feels towards some of those works. Some of the people in the
0: audience were hostile to what she was saying. Some of their reactions were captured in the audio recording of the conference, which you can access online at the Black Art Group Research Project on Soundcloud.
4: She was being, I would say, heckled by some of the the less liberal-minded section of the, the audience. So on the tape, you can hear one voice particularly heckling her, and that is Muyapo, who was one of the members that was there with the Black Art Gallery contingent. So he was with Shaka. Claudette said at one point, I wanted to look at images of Black women who were made by people who are not Black women. And then Anum said, you mean white people. If you mean white people, say white people. And then she said, that's not what I mean, because some of these images are not made by white people. When I listen to that tape now, it reminds me of why it was important for us as women to organise together, because he was not helpful in his criticisms and his pointers. He was just talking over her and dismissing what she had to say. In fact, he did say when she'd finished speaking that he didn't see any difference between her work and the work of the European artists that she'd shown, which was stunningly critical. So what was the heckling all about? My thoughts about it are informed by other conversations that I had either with Anum or with people like him. And I would say that... For some men and some women, actually, they would say that by having a conversation about gender, you're dividing the struggle and that the real struggle is around race. It's not about gender. And therefore, by bringing gender into the conversation, you're actually taking us one step backwards instead of stepping forwards. I think that that would be his rationale.
0: This kind of criticism had parallels elsewhere, for example, in the hostility of some men on the left to conversations about gender and patriarchy, which was
4: seen as dividing the class struggle. But back to Claudette's talk. She was talking about making space for black women and wanting to see images of black women. And I think that she then gives permission to all the other women in the space to also talk about what's important to them. And from listening to Anum Heckel, there certainly is an impression that the conference doesn't want to listen to her either because we were running late and it was at the point where Claudette did her talk that the comments were cut short. So she didn't get the kind of feedback that she needed And it felt very much that that conversation had begun, but it needed to be completed. So that's a very galvanizing set of circumstances. It's like, I think for the women that were there, it was remarkable to see the work itself and challenging in a good way to say, you know, how am I representing women in my work? Most
0: of the women at the conference chose to move into a side room to continue the discussion among themselves. They shared slides of each other's work and made connections that would sow the seeds for collaborations and shows throughout the 1980s. Some see it as the start of a black women's art movement in the UK. In the next episode, we'll hear about the creative activity that would follow, the galleries, the shows and the work of women wanting to make their own images to express the politics and realities of their experiences.
4: It means that every little girl that looks like me will see that work and not see the little face as a slave or a maid, but as a real person. And she will be able to say, Look, mom, that's me. Or she won't even say, Look, mom. She will be able to just take it for granted.
1: So I did everything I could to make the work the sort of thing a woman would have made and to insist that the sorts of things that women make are amazing.
0: The Women in Revolt podcast series was made possible by the generous support of Labana Hamid. It was conceived of by me, Lindsay Young, and it was produced by Rosie Oliver of Ticker Tape Productions, who researched, conducted, and recorded all of the interviews. It features music from White Mice by the Medettes. Women in Revolt, Art and Activism in the UK 1970-1990, is on at Tate Britain from the 8th of November 2023 to the 7th of April 2024 at National Galleries of Scotland Modern Edinburgh from 25th of May 2024 to the 26th of January 2025, and at the Whitworth University of Manchester from 7th of March to the 24th of August 2025. The exhibition is supported by the Women in Revolt Exhibition Supporters Circle, Tate International Council, Tate patrons and Tate members.